if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. I'm often asked, what is the Protestant, compared to the Catholic, position on this or that issue? Really, it's often an impossible question to answer because, well, there is no single Protestant theology or practice. Most cradle Catholics imagine Protestants or Protestantism to be a, a monolithic group. But the reality is that, in practice, Protestantism often just means any Christian denomination or movement that isn't Catholic or Greek Orthodox and is less than 500 years old. It's, it's a little bit like saying Europeans or Asians. Those umbrella categories include people from dozens of different nations and languages and cultures. But two of the major branches on the Protestant tree that began growing in the 16th century are Lutheranism and Calvinism. Now, the names come from the founders of these two movements, two of the pioneering giants of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, who began his schism from the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany in the year 1517, and John Calvin, a French scholar who led the Reformation movement in Geneva, Switzerland, between 1541 and 1564. From those two founders, the Lutheran and Calvinist branches, uh, and by the way, the Calvinists prefer to be called Reformed, spread over the last five centuries. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, then you've already met Corey Licatos. We've done a number of episodes together and have a regular segment called Book Club. Well, Corey came to Catholicism from a Lutheran background, and I came from a Calvinist or Reformed background. And so, we sat down to talk about the differences between the two and between both of them and Catholicism, and how the road to Rome differs if you begin in Germany or Geneva. So, Corey, let's talk about Protestantism and Protestants. I think, you know, you and I were both Protestants yes. who came into the Catholic Church. And one of the things I've noticed since I, I've entered the church is that for a lot of cradle Catholics, they think of Pro Protestants as, well, like one big monogamous or, you know, um, uniform yeah. group, right? Homogenous. Yeah. Homogenous group. So... Uh, we were kind of joking offline about it's, it's sort of like, you know, in the old medieval maps, like beyond here, there lie sea monsters or, you know, yes, whatnot. Here there be dragons. Yeah, here there be dragons. Or, or, you know, for the Romans, everybody who wasn't a Roman or the Greeks, everybody who wasn't was a barbarian. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, everybody who is not a Catholic is a Protestant. And there's this notion, as you say, that there's this homo homogenous nature to them or this homogeneity. <laughs> homogeneity. Homogeneity. However, however, however you say that. 
and and the reality is is that there's lots of flavors and types of Protestants. The only thing that mm-hmm. unites them is that they're not Catholics. And when you look at the uh, the original Protestant Reformation in the uh, 16th century, beginning with Martin Luther in 1517, what you realize is that there, there, the Protestant Reformation broke up within the first couple of decades into several sort of major movements. Mm-hmm. And two of those were Lutheranism, obviously coming from Luther, and Calvinism coming from a guy named John Calvin, who occurred about a generation or so after Luther. He was, right. a, he was a French professor um, uh, of theology at, in, at the University of Paris who ended up in Geneva as a Protestant leaving and leading um, the Protestant movement in Geneva. And from him came um, the Protestant uh, movement of uh, the School of Theology of Calvinism, sometimes called Reformed Theology. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you grew up a Lutheran. Yes. And I grew, and I, well, didn't grow up, but I was a Calvinist. I went to Calvin Seminary and I worked in a Calvinist denomination was ordained in a Calvinist denomination. So we both came into the Catholic church, but in a sense from two different um, Protestant camps. Right. So let's talk a little bit about some of the differences between Lutheranism and Calvinism in comparison to Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe for those, of us, those who are Catholic listeners, they can have a little bit more understanding of the different types of or schools of thought within Protestantism. And then let's talk a little bit about what it was like to travel a road to Rome from Germany versus Geneva, <laughs> right. in a sense, right? And what that mm-hmm. road was like. So why don't we start off? Why don't you uh, share a little bit with your understanding of the differences between Lutheranism and Calvinism? Certainly. Um, so uh, I grew up in a, in a congregation of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, which is one of the three or so um, Lutheran bodies that are in the United States. Um, and so as part of our catechesis growing up, we were taught about, um, Martin Luther and, and what he, um, taught. And of course that is necessarily set up in contrast with, with what the Catholic church taught. Um, so Luther was an Augustinian monk. Um, he had witnessed many of the, um, abuses and the problems in the church, um, in the 16th century, um, in which he lived. Um, and, and he himself was a very scrupulous man. He was very worried about being damned, about his sin, um, very angsty and troubled by this. Um, and, and eventually he came to this, this epiphany or this realization um, of the idea of faith alone, um, that works were nothing, um, that uh, simply by faith as the free gift of God, um, salvation came. And of course, you can see sort of the the root of Catholic truth in there or the, or the way that he got a, a truth of Christianity, um, but off enough to not, to not be uh, fully correct. Um, because of course we, we are saved by God's grace alone. Um, but, but our faith is worked out through works. Um, but in any case, um, Luther, um, very quickly came into conflict with the Catholic hierarchy um, he, he's kind of the, the original Protestant. So he was the first to, to, um, formulate some of the, the catchwords or the, the overarching concepts that, that come to define Protestantism more jointly, more, more broadly. Um, so faith alone, sola fide in Latin, um, he rejected the authority of, uh, of tradition and of the magisterium in the church and said scripture was the only rule. So sola scriptura or scripture alone. Uh, grace alone, as I mentioned before, sola gratia. Um, 
and uh, so very quickly became came into conflict with the Catholic hierarchy, ended up getting um, splitting. There's a lot of complexity to that historically um, that we don't have to go into now. And then over time, you have these various Lutheran bodies, um, especially in Europe. Many of them are state churches in places like Sweden or various parts of Germany. Obviously, you have Lutherans in the New World um, when Germans and Swedes and others start to come here. And so you have official organizations growing up. And so you have uh, essentially a, a faith and a church organizations that, that set up very consciously in opposition to um, kind of what you might call the distinctives of, of Catholicism, of scripture and tradition, faith and works um, of the, the Episcopal model of, of church governance, where, where um, there are local churches governed by bishops and administered by priests. Um, he had kind of a hyper focus on, on the idea of the priesthood of all believers um, that de-emphasized um, orders as not a sacrament. Um, yeah, uh, sacramental theology would be another um, uh, big part of this. So he didn't entirely reject the idea of sacraments, um, but his understanding of them came to be different. Um, for one, he, he whittled the list of seven down to two, um, uh, baptism and the Eucharist. And um, his understanding of uh, the Eucharist um, is different than the Catholic understanding. Um, we refer to transubstantiation, um, that the elements of bread and wine are transformed, are changed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, that you don't still have bread and wine there. The appearance is there, but not um, the actual substances. It's substantially changed into Christ. Luther, the Lutheran position has come to be known as consubstantiation. You have that, that Latin root con with, um, that Christ is present, um, but the bread and wine are also there. There's a sort of, he's, he's there in or, or under or right. how, whatever one, a preposition you want to use. We'll get into, we'll, yeah. get, we'll get into the whole Eucharist thing here. A yeah. Yeah. We can do that more, we'll com- compare and contrast the the three views of the Eucharist, mm-hmm. you know, the metaphysics of it, but yeah. yeah. Um, but so you have a different um, sacramental understanding um, that's at yeah. the heart of Lutheranism. Well, okay, great. That's a great summary of uh, Lutheranism beginning with Luther. So let me uh, speak from the Calvinist side. Uh, John Calvin, uh, like I said, is a generation or two later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Protestant Reformation has already sort of gotten under steam. And so he isn't a revolutionary in the way that Luther was a revolutionary. By the time of Calvin, people were uh, jumping onto the Protestant bandwagon and they were forming Protestant denominations and they were beginning to systematize and organize mm-hmm. Protestantism. You know, there's a sort of a chaos that surrounds Luther. Well, and yeah, Luther himself evolved quite a bit over yeah. his lifetime and he was caught up in lots of political yeah. happenings at the time. Yeah. And he was, it was something of a chaotic thinker. Well, and yeah, a, and a chaotic, chaotic personality, I would say. Right. So by the time that Calvin's generation comes along, the Protestant Reformation has has been gaining steam for 20, 30 years, and now it's time to begin to catalog and systematize and create doctrine and order and organize denominations. And so Calvin sort of comes in at that point in the movement, and he is a systematic thinker, an organizer, uh, a writer. Uh, so Calvin was a professor, uh, he was French, he was a professor at the University of Paris where Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. um, a couple hundred years earlier, had been, uh, two, three hundred years earlier, had been 
And so he comes out of that University of Paris um, intellectual environment. Of course, now it's several centuries later. And so he is rebelling against what, in a lot of ways, had come of Thomistic thought had become. You know, there had been a sort of a, a de-evolution or a, a sort of a corruption of the, the sort of rational thought of Thomas Aquinas into something that's mockingly called the schoolmen. And so these were just, you know, generation after generation sort of, nobody ever, by the way, uh, asked how many angels could dance on the head of a pen, but that's the joke that mm-hmm. by that point it had devolved to that sort of thing. And so he rebels against the schoolmen and rebels against the sort of academic environment he's in. He, he adopts um, the Protestant viewpoint, but he brings all of that systematic thinking and that sort of intellectual uh, process to Protestantism and begins to organize doctrines. And one of the things why he has sort of a parallel with Thomas Aquinas, not just the University of Paris connection or whatever, it's because the Thomas Aquinas obviously wrote the Summa Theologica, the great catalog of systematic theology. Mm-hmm. Calvin is the one who writes the great systematic theology of the Reformation. It's called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Giant two-volume thing. When I went to Calvin Seminary, I had to get the giant two-volume. And he goes through, like in um, a very systematic way, uh, categories, you know, um, Christology, soteriology, all these kinds of things, and writes the first great really organized systematic theology. And he also writes commentaries on the Bible. So I also had on my shelf for many, many years, the complete set of Calvin's commentaries. And he writes exhaustive commentaries on every book of the Bible, or just about every book of the Bible. So he's that kind of a thinker. He then gets um, sort of conscripted or recruited, or however you want to think of it, to Geneva, Switzerland, where at that time, Protestants had taken over the city. They wanted to turn into a, a what they thought of as a, uh, a Protestant city on the hill. You know, they wanted a model of Protestantism. And so they were looking for somebody to lead them. And they recruited Calvin, who at that time, you know, had this great reputation as a, as a uh, Protestant theologian to come. <clears throat> and therein lies uh, maybe a, a truism that uh, academics should probably never run governments. <laughs> because Calvin is, does not have a great track record of success in running Geneva. And he, it lasted a few years. The people of Geneva began to rebel against him because he literally was this, this uh, intellectual academic who is kind of conscripted into running a city and organizing um, that and dealing with politics. And he's really not, you know, well suited to that from a personality or, or skill set. And so the whole experiment of Geneva and Calvin's Geneva kind of turns into a little bit of a, a fascist nightmare state and the end, people end up kind of kicking him out. But Calvinism, the ideas of Calvinism um, and those, those systematic uh, uh, institutes of the Christian religion get a lot of traction. They get traction in certain parts of France. They get a ton of traction in what are called the low countries, which is the Netherlands, uh, primarily the Dutch uh, he gets a lot of traction in Scotland, John Knox, mm-hmm. and the Scottish Presbyterians. And so this kind of Calvinist Presbyterianism, Reformed theology, you know, is hugely influential and in some ways has more lasting influence, I would argue, on the formation of American evangelicalism than Lutheranism. 
I, I'd say that's probably correct. Because Calvinist principles, because they're organized and systematic, can be adapted and understood and taught in ways that Luther, who was a little bit of a reactive person, he's always like throwing things out in reaction, but Calvinism was picked up uh, in England and Scotland and brought to America, and the principles of Calvinism became uh, part of the principles of American evangelicalism. So let's talk a little bit about what those principles are. So share what, uh, contrast for me a little bit uh, from your perspective as a former Lutheran, what you think the difference is kind of between Lutheran Protestantism versus Calvinist Protestantism. Sure. Um, so uh, I already talked a little bit about the, the sacramental um, ideas of Lutheranism that, that is different than, than Calvinism. Um, Calvin and different people will debate exactly what Calvin meant. And there's obviously been variety in, in exactly how people who have succeeded him have interpreted it. Um, but generally speaking, Calvin and Calvinism um, consider the sacraments to be more symbolic and less um, to be a, a, a real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and more a symbolic presence or Okay. Yeah, All right. All right. Let me, let me, let me, yeah. okay. This is where we, yeah, you we, can get some more push, subtlety to, to that. Push back yeah. to that. But ha- having been a Calvinist uh, pastor or whatever. Okay. So when I was a Calvinist, you know, what we talked about is that the sacraments were efficacious and real, but they were acts of faith. Mm-hmm. The, he actually rejected the symbolism. So there were some other thinkers at the time um, that uh, argued, uh, Protestant thinkers that, we don't have to get all the names and all that, but sure. they argued that it was that the Eucharist or the sacraments were merely symbols. Calvin just really angrily denounced that. He said, they're not symbols. What they are is they're acts of faith. So let's talk about the Eucharist, right? Mm-hmm. Catholic position of the Eucharist, transubstantiation. There's a sort of metaphysics that goes with that. And the metaphysics is that uh, based on the thought of Aristotle rendered through Thomas Aquinas, that things consist of a substance and an accident. Those are the ancient words, but mm-hmm. or the essence and the accident. And what that really means is what something is versus what it looks like, one way to think about it. So the example I used to give all the time to that um, was if you think about what is water. So water is H2O, right? It is two hydrogen atoms bonded to an oxygen atom, right? That's what water is. Water takes a lot of different forms. Water can be a gas, it can be a solid, it can be a liquid, it can appear different ways, you can color water, you can do this and that. Um, But what water is in its essence is two hydrogen atoms and a oxygen. Well, in the same way, and and it's not a perfect analogy, but the Catholic Church says, well, wait a minute, what happens in the Eucharist is that the the actual essence of something changes. So like that molecular, you know, quality in a sense changes into the the body and the blood of Jesus, but the appearance of it, which would be like saying that water can be, you know, solid like ice or Mm -hmm. liquid or gas or steam, that it still retains that outward appearance, right? Mm -hmm. Now, as you say, Luther says, whoa, 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 hold on a second. He has this kind of view of consubstantiation. And his idea is that two things are occupying the same point in space-time. So at the, the place where the minister is holding the bread and the wine, that's a point in space-time. And that because of the invocation of the Spirit, that the body and blood of Jesus occupies that 
moment or that location on the XYZ axis of space-time at the same place. Like, we normally think two things can't be in the same place at the same time, but I think that's what Luther really meant by saying it's over, under, around, permeating. So it's still bread and wine, but at the moment it's bread and wine, the presence of Jesus is also there. Right, right. Calvin says, no, 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 you're both wrong. Calvin says that uh, it's still bread and wine, but when we in faith take it, the Holy Spirit makes it as the body and blood of Jesus to us. So when so it's about reception, it's about reception. And when we receive it in faith, it becomes as or is credited to us as the body and blood of Jesus. It's not just a symbol. It's the act of faith that makes it that to us by a miracle of the Spirit. So they argued around that, but I think more than just the metaphysics of it, it's the role of the sacraments. Because I think Lutheranism, at least traditional Lutheranism, maintain is a more is in, in its in the liturgy, it's more sacramental in its character and practice. Mm-hmm. Practice a lot more of the sacraments. Yeah. You know, the communion is more often, baptism, uh, you have God children, you have a lot of things right. that are sort of sacramental and liturgical practices of the Catholic yeah, Church. Th- that things, that a, things that a Catholic, at least from the outside, would recognize. Yeah, I mean, of the Protestant services, it's the one that you walk to if you go to a very traditional Lutheran service. It, it, it's one that feels most Catholic. Yeah, it really does depend on which one you go to. Well, which yeah. one you go to. I'm <laughs> saying if you go to a very a conservative Lutheran, traditional conservative Lutheran thing, it feels more Catholic. Sure, sure. Calvinist doesn't at all. So Calvin um, and, and the Calvinists were iconoclasts. They were the ones running around smashing stained glass windows, stripping statues out of churches, because for Calvin, everything is about, it was about faith, and it really is about an intellectual understanding of the faith. And anything that competes with that, so the use of statues and stained glass and vestments and all of these things, all of that gets in the way of just us hearing about the faith and believing in the truth of the gospel and the truth of, the, of you know, theology or whatever. And so it really becomes an intellectual religion. It, it, Calvinist, Calvinism is at its heart about thinking and knowing and believing and less about doing. Mm-hmm. And and so anything that gets in the way of the thinking and knowing and believing and looks like a distraction was stripped away. So when you go to Europe and you go to these, go to Geneva and you walk into these churches that had formerly been Catholic churches and the Calvinists got their hands on them, they reduced it to this bare space. The altar is taken away and what is stuck there is a giant pulpit so a guy can give you a, a, an hour-long lecture about the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then you sit there and you listen to the hour-long lecture of the Bible and you think and you believe and you know and you understand, and that's the important thing. And in a lot of ways, that's where, like I said, it became very influential into American evangelicalism, which in a sense becomes a lot of ways about thinking and, and knowing and understanding and listening to sermons and believing and less about it, liturgy. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, some other theological differences. Um, and, and that is like, so, you know, my best friend growing up uh, through most of my life has been, um, uh, is a, a professor of, uh, of uh, philosophy of religion at a, at a very conservative Lutheran uh, school. And uh, so we've had lots and lots of arguments about Luther versus Calvin's understandings or Calvin versus Luther. 
of, of things like um, uh, predestination. Mm-hmm. and atonement and the sovereignty of God. You want to speak to that a little bit? Sure. Well, atonement is one that I'm more familiar with. So Luther had a more forensic view of atonement where he didn't believe that by Christ's sacrifice, um, the forgiveness that you receive for your sins substantially changes you or it, it's more a matter of um, it being credited to you or, or using the analogy of like throwing a, throwing a clean white garment over your filthy rags or that kind of thing, that, that Christ's sacrifice and, and Christ's um, righteousness has you covered, um, that God kind of credit it, credits it to your account to mix metaphors, um, but not so much um, the, the transformation um, that we would, we would talk about more in the, in the Catholic context of the sacraments. Like uh, we talk about, um, us particularly with baptism, like um, it, it freeing you from, from original sin and affecting an ontological change in you, um, that wouldn't be something that would be embraced by a more Lutheran perspective. So Calvinism is famously summarized by the five points of Calvinism, right? Naturally. Which are, uh, which are they have a wonderful acronym called TULIP, right? Because it was like the Dutch. And I don't know whether like they came up with it that way or like that's yeah, it's know. like what's, does that work in dutch <laughs> i don't even know if it works in dutch and i don't even know if it works like what what was the chicken and which was the egg right mm-hmm. so did they come up with the tulip acronym because the dutch liked tulips or did the dutch begin like tulips because they were all calvinists and they believed in tulip calvinism mm-hmm. but in any case there's these five points right mm-hmm. and i've argued with my lutheran buddy our whole lives about this um that uh a big difference. So the first, the T is total depravity. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's the T and total depravity doesn't mean that everybody is as bad as they could be. Mm-hmm. What it means is that sin, original sin, there's no a- part of our lives that it hasn't touched, right? There's no aspect of humanity that in some sense isn't corrupted or contaminated or diminished by sin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Lutheran, Lutheranism or Luther was a kind of largely okay with sure, that. Sure, that's not diff- too different from a Lutheran. Yeah, from a Lutheran perspective, it, it, it's true. He would, they, Lutherans tend to agree that there's no aspect of human nature not corrupted. They're, they're certainly sin. pessimistic about human nature and especially about human reason. Now, Catholicism, you know that, Catholicism, in a sense, does not completely buy that. Mm-hmm. It says that humanity is diminished, but that there is uh, aspects of our humanity that still have, have value. And this is why, you know, my you know, Calvinists, you know, just, you know, think that um, Catholics or Catholicism um, believes in works theology because it believes that you can still, there's aspects of you that can still save yourself. But anyway, okay, so let's stay on the Calvin. To, T, total depravity. Right. Okay. And the next one we get to is, 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 is the, the controversial one or one of the controversial ones, which is, which is unconditional election. That's the U, mm-hmm. okay? Now, unconditional election was Calvin's uh, belief that we are elected. God predestines us. Elected means predestined. Before you were born, before you did anything, God picked some people to be saved. He elected them to salvation. And not based on anything about themselves, not based on any merit, anything that they would do, he just picked some to be saved. And the inverse of that, he unconditionally... Um, uh, made some people reprobate. Right. So if I've got a basket, you know, if I've got a dozen eggs in the egg tray here and I go through and I pick this one, this one, this one, and this one to be saved, I have 
picked the others to not be. Right. You're you're also electing people for hell, sometimes called double predestination. Yeah, and and there's like two flavors of that. So some people try to soften Calvinism. Some Calvinists try to soften it, saying, "Well, he selects some people and and sort of passively allows others." But the hardcore Calvinist says, "No, no, no, no." He actively chews. So it's not so much that I picked, you know, six eggs out of the tray and left the other ones to, to rot. I picked six eggs out of the tray, put them in my omelet or, or whatever I'm going to do with them that's good. I don't know if being in the omelet maybe isn't good. But I pick six for, for heaven and I take the other six and I throw them away. I proactively choose to make them reprobate and send them to hell. Right. Now that was something that Luther could not wrap his mind around or Lutherans, as I understand. Mm-hmm can't accept the double predestination of Calvinism. And in a lot of ways, the double predestination of Calvinism is Calvin's, Calvinism's most distinct. And, and the well one I teaching. think that people struggle with the most, um, right. that, that people who reject Calvinism tend or most quite often do it on that grounds. Now, the rationale for it is God's absolute sovereignty, that if God is, ab- if God is absolutely sovereign and he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing, then his will is, in a sense, um, you know, irresistible. And God cannot not do that. If he knows all and he can do all, and he's chosen some for salvation and some for damnation, we get to the L. Now, I know that the, the Lutheran, Luther and conservative Lutherans don't accept the L, and the L mm-hmm. is limited atonement. Right. Because the consequence of the double predestination thing is that Christ didn't die for the eggs you're sending to right. the, into the, sending, putting right. in the trash. He can. didn't die for the whole world. No, he people. only died for the elect. That's, that's the limited atonement. Atonement is limited. And the rationale that Calvinists had for that is because God is all-powerful and uh, his sovereignty is absolute, th- that to say that he died for the unelect or for the reprobate or the damned is in a sense to diminish him because why would he offer salvation or he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't offer atonement to those who aren't going to take it. Right. From that perspective, you would be saying that God failed or messed up. Exactly. That God failed. And a Calvinist can't say that. So what that means is that when you look at somebody who's, you know, not, is going to go to hell, you go, Christ didn't even die for you. And that limited atonement, I know that Lutheran, Luther rejected and Lutherans rejected. And of course, that's not the Catholic position either. Correct. Um, the I is irresistible grace, which once again, if God is all powerful and, uh, and efficacious, that if he wants you, there's nothing you can do. So people really don't have a say in their salvation. When you, when you in a sense come to Christian faith, it's because God moved you, not because you chose. There's no part of the night. This is what Catholicism rejects this. Because Catholicism you says you do have a space to make a free choice. In Calvinism, you don't really make a free choice. Mm-hmm. You, you, if you think that you're accepting Christ, it's only because God or the Holy Spirit is moving on you, making that decision for you. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we get to the P, which is perseverance of the saints. And, and this is the notion that because God is fully efficacious and he's picked some people and his grace is irresistible, once you're in, you can't get out. You can't fail. Because if you were able to say, uh, accept Christ and, uh, you know, be on your way to heaven or whatever, um, you can't lose your salvation. Because in the Calvinist worldview or the Calvinist scheme, 
uh, if you could lose your salvation, then God's grace wouldn't be absolute and irresistible. Right. This is the one that I always went round and round with coming from a Lutheran background with, with the Calvinists or the, or the reformed, um, students that I met, I, I went to a, a college that, um, is, was ecumenical, but it was based in, in the reformed tradition. So you had a lot of, a lot of reformed people there. Um, and it just never made sense to me because you'd say, well, why in the new Testament are they constantly warning me about falling away from the faith if I can't, or if somebody does turn away from the faith, what does that mean that they never were a Christian to begin with? They only appeared to be, and there were all these things that seem to be contradictions. Yeah. And as a former Calvinist, when people would say that to me, I would go, well, you know, and again, like I, I'm, and tell you how it ended because I tried to, I tried to wrap my mind around that for enough years. But the fact mm-hmm. that I'm sitting here hosting the considering Catholicism podcast is an indication that in mind, in the end, I couldn't, I couldn't make this work in mm-hmm. my own mind. But the, the, the argument would go that, uh, at an existential level, right? Like what you're conscious of doing, um, you're conscious that I am choosing Jesus. I am choosing to be faithful to Jesus. I am choosing to be grateful to Jesus. I am choosing to not do bad things. I'm choosing to stay on the right path, right? Um, that's how that appears to you. But behind the scenes and sort of the deep counsels of God, the reason that you think that and the reason that you do that is because he's moved you and he's essentially written the script for your life to go that way. And, and so when the, uh, as you say, in the New Testament, it says, well, don't turn away. Those are good warnings. We shouldn't turn away. But someone who's truly elected never will. Mm-hmm. So we make that warning. And we would also argue, I would have argued, I used to argue, that of course I say to people uh, who have faith, don't fall away. And the way that I know <laughs> who's really elect and who doesn't who is who listens, <laughs> right? Because if you fall away, I go, see, see, you never were in in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so, in a sense, one of the things about Calvinism is that it, it has a fatalism to it, um, especially the harder edges or the harder sort of forms of Calvinism. So over the years, I've worked on, obviously, Calvinism, and I've, I've actually worked on, I know you have too, um, some books and projects on Islam. Sure. And one of the things that a lot of people have pointed out is that there is a sort of fatalism logical fatalism that runs through both Calvinism and Islam, that in some sense, I'm not saying Calvinism is Islam, but the worldview, Mm -hmm. sort of structure of the worldview is that God is this absolute sovereign will of which you can do nothing. And and, and in a sense, you don't really ultimately make any choices. What happens, happens because it's God's will. And so whether you're a Muslim saying, inshallah, I guess that's the way it goes, or you're a Calvinist saying, ah, well, the sovereignty of God is playing itself out. There is a sort of fatalism to it. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's fundamentally um, a doubt about the efficacy of your own choices and the reality of your own thoughts. I think that that is really can be quite, at least I found could be quite a disturbing prospect. Well, and it's, it's a low view of, 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 of humanity. It's a low view of human life. And I think, you know, that was one of the things that you know, help me to begin to move away from Calvinism towards Catholicism is that there is a sort of, of course, I can imagine my Calvinist self many, many years ago railing against this, but there is a, a humanism to Catholicism. And now they go, oh my gosh, look, it's humanism. And I go, no, 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 no. It's a, a real respect for the human person. 
Created in the image and likeness of God. Created in the image and likeness of God with qualities of the image and likeness of God. Diminished, yes, by sin, but still retaining the dignity um, of the human person in the image of God and still retaining in some respects um, intellect and will, which, Mm -hmm. you know, um, from a classic sort of Catholic medieval standpoint, those were the two, you know, characteristics, you know, of, of, of humanity. What separates us from the animals is that we have intellect and rational will. So we can know what is good and we can choose to act on what is good. And in Calvinism, the intellect and will are diminished. Like, uh, you know, last year in Lane, we, we did this whole course on, on Dante. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in Dante's um, uh, Divine Comedy, the Commedia, he makes that point all the time over and over again in that worldview, because in a lot of ways, the Divine Comedy is sort of the worldview or the theology of Thomas Aquinas sort of fleshed out in a sort of fictional way. Mm-hmm. And what you notice is that as you go down into inferno, into hell, people gradually lose intellect and rational will. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, they lose the ability to know what is right and to do what is right. And then as they move up, as Dante and, um, and Virgil or whatnot move up through purgatory, and then Dante eventually moves up through Paradiso, what he discovers is that as souls move towards heaven, towards God, the qualities of the intellect, the capacity to know what is good and the capacity to choose what is good becomes enhanced. But that, that if we lack any of that, we lack, you know, what the old Catholic, you know, what Thomas Aquinas would have called intellect and, and will, um, that, that's really what, that, that's the image of God in us. Mm-hmm. So... You know, uh, Calvinism and Lutheranism, oh boy, I guess we just scratched the surface on that. Oh, sure, there's plenty more. And, and, and let's just say real quickly that I think that there's elements of both because both had some genuine insights. Oh, sure. And I mean, Luther starting out um, the whole uh, revolt against the abuses in the church, there were very real abuses Absolutely. Um, that, that the popes and the councils and ultimately the great saints of the Counter-Reformation recognized and, and worked there. The yeah. hardest by, if, the, by the guidance of the spirit to amend. And if we were, if we were playing the, you know, what could have been game, sure. right? Um, actually, when Luther, when Luther nailed his theses on the Wittenberg door and you think what could have been, if the Pope at that time hadn't said, well, this is just written by some drunken German and, um, and then he wanted to, you know, it's this Medici Pope who wanted to enjoy the papacy while we have it. And he had not blown it off and he had... Um, you know, address those things and could it have been a, a sort of a reform movement against some of the abuses of the church? Sure. Or, or on the other side, if, if Luther had not dug in his heels and gotten very combative and, yep. and stubborn and had been open to dialogue instead of, right. um, and, and of course there was closeness to dialogue on the other side too, but if, if Luther had reacted in a different way, what could yeah. have come of it? So Luther had some some insights. I mean, ultimately, as a faithful Catholic, I, I think Luther was wrong about where he landed. But I mean, you know, yeah, like you say, his critique of the, the abuses of his day was, you know, a lot of that was valid. So and then Calvin, I think the thing that so, you know, with Calvin, there were some insights there. There, there was a sort of systematic approach to thinking about theology and thinking about God's sovereignty uh, and thinking of that 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 sort of systematic approach to theology since the time of Thomas Aquinas nobody had really written that kind of taken that sort of systematic big view approach in a lot of ways 
Calvin really creates the field of systematic theology where it's organized in categories. Because, you know, as you know, the Summa isn't organized in those kinds of categories. But with Mm -hmm. Calvin, you know, you start with, um, you know, the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of the church. And you sort of organize that. And so there's some genuine value in, in, in some of the approaches, at least some of the process that Calvin brought to it all, mm-hmm. and also his exhaustive commentaries on the books of Scripture, um, you know, was helpful in terms of helping, you know, the, the, lay, the laity to read through the books of Scripture and understand what they were so, and what they taught. So, you know, there were some values, and you can see in Catholicism, I think even to this day, certain aspects of the Catholic Church that, um, or some portions of the Catholic Church that show some influence from Lutheranism and from Calvinism. Like, from the Calvin side, you, you have uh, something that was called Jansenism, mm. uh, which was a French movement in the, what, 17th century? Uh, yeah, it spanned, spanned a few centuries. 17th, but, 18th century, yeah. uh, where uh, in France, uh, pretty northern France and the Netherlands, there were... Uh, quite a number of people began to buy into some some Calvinist notions of the sovereignty of God and sort of kind of a fatalism about that. And then, you know, I think the the church and the Catholic Church in Germany has always been kind of haunted by the fact that it was divided by Luther and mm-hmm. wanted to kind of reconcile some of Lutheran's ideas with with uh, with Catholicism. Sure. So when we talk about taking roads to Rome, in a sense, from Germany or from Geneva. What were the what were the easy parts of that road from Germany, uh, or the, what were the hard parts? Yeah, well, th- this might be similar um, in some ways, but but the founding the founding story of Lutheranism is, of course, Martin Luther's um, rebellion against the Catholic Church. So there's a very ingrained hostility to the the ecclesiastical structures and and doctrines and history of the catholic church um in lutherans um thinking back to you know how things were explained to me growing up in in catechism class in a lutheran church it's it's very much uh this is what we rebelled against this is what we must avoid this is what we must never go back to um so there's both a doctrinal and a sort of a, a narrative or a psychological um barrier there, um, Catholicism and especially the Pope's kind of being defined as the other or the, mm. the enemy. Um, I know that there, there's of course a rejection of, of Catholicism and that history and that structure mm. in, in, in Calvin too, that you could probably speak to how, how that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, when you're talking about the road in a sense from Geneva to, uh, Rome, it was interesting because even when I was in seminary at Calvin Seminary, there were a number of former, well-known former Calvinists who converted to Catholicism. And uh, probably the most prominent one was Peter Kreeft, who mm-hmm. had been a professor at the school where uh, I got my one graduate degree. And then eventually, you know, he moved from being this, this sort of Calvinist, um, you know, evangelical author to converting to Catholicism and now being a very well-known Catholic author. And he was only one of many. When I was um, in, in graduate school, I took a course from a professor at Notre Dame who had been a former Calvinist and had converted to Catholicism. I was teaching the philosophy department at Notre Dame. It was a graduate philosophy course. And his argument was that Calvin and Aquinas weren't as far apart um, as you think they were. Okay. Um, and he, you know, wrote this book where he tried to sort of reconcile some aspects of, of Thomas Aquinas 
uh, and, and Calvin. And he said, if you actually read what they actually wrote, rather than sort of the ethos and all that stuff, they're not as far apart as you think. And I remember going down to Notre Dame for this workshop seminar with him. And this is why I was still a Calvinist and how I was so attracted to that. And I was seeing Calvinist intellectuals like Kreeft and Van Ingen and all these guys who were like going, hey, I'm like a super big, well-known Calvinist author, professor, theologian, and I just am to become a Catholic. And I was like, well, what's going on here? <laughs> so even when I was in seminary, I was like, wait, 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 hold on, what's going on here? And I think part of it is, is that within Calvinism, the, 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 you know, the, the liturgy and the sacraments, there's no, you know, commonality, but what there was is this intellectual tradition. Mm-hmm. And that once you started asking a lot of questions and taking this intellectual approach to the faith and, and really diving into it, you sort of go down a, a rabbit hole and you start reading Aquinas and you start reading this and you start reconciling some of, of those things. And so I think that the, it's less the road from Geneva to Rome is less about liturgy and sacraments, but a lot more about intellectual tradition and, and philosophy. And I think a lot of the people who've made that transition have gone, you know, down that via that route. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so I, we alluded to earlier that in any um, Protestant group, whether it's Calvinist or, or Lutheran, you're going to see some some variation because yeah. there are either different groups of them who have gone different ways on different issues, right. or there's just there's not a strong authority um, structure in order to rein different different tendencies in. So you have in Lutheranism, you're, you're more um, classical or conservative, um, uh, liturgical and doctrinal groups. And then you have other Lutherans that, um, especially in, in the U.S., um, th- their practice of the faith looks and feels a lot more like a, like a low church evangelicalism. Um, and, and where I grew up, it was kind of a kind of a bipolar split between those two. You'd have the one service where it's the modern music mm-hmm. um, and much a much lower church feel. And then the other service that was done earlier in the morning um, had the much more classical and, mm-hmm. and liturgical feel. And I think on that side, um, the, the wing of Lutherans that are more interested in a, a reverent and traditional liturgy um, and avoiding more modernist um, uh, doctrinal um, drift. And, and I think you see this even more, um, with Anglicans of that persuasion, yeah. but I think Lutherans are on, Lutherans can be on that spectrum too. Um, there's a kind of fascination and almost flirtation with the Catholic church because they look at Lutheranism or Protestantism more broadly and they see what the liturgy has become, yeah. what it's devolved to, um, all of the, um, contrary winds of change that have blown um, Protestantism, especially low church Protestantism in, in right. different directions, um, in different, um, doctrinal, uh, errors, um, and weirdness. And they, they look at the Catholic church and yeah, we're not perfect. And we have our, our heretics too, right. certainly, but we have, we have, uh, an authority and a tradition and a stability, um, and a liturgy that is lacking, um, yeah. in, in those traditions and in Lutheranism. And so I think there is one path from, from Germany to Rome that says, that looks at what Lutheranism more broadly has become and says, 
we don't like that, we we kind of are looking in the direction yeah. of Roman of the the un, unbroken tradition of the church. Yeah. So, so the things that you, in a sense, love about the liturgy, the great mm-hmm. aspects of it, you go, well, if I love this, well, it, it's sort of in a more perfect form. Mm-hmm. Um, you find it in Rome. And, you know, just a quick analogy there on the sort of intellectual tradition. I remember having a professor in grad school, a Calvinist professor, a professor of philosophy, religion. And he was telling me a story about where he had this epiphany moment where he goes, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I don't know. I'm worried that I'm going to turn Catholic. He told me in his office one time and he said, he goes, I went to this conference on medical ethics. And he said, uh, there was like a reformed Calvinist theologian guy gets up there and he's like trying to solve all these complex medical bioethics questions by just appeal to the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And he goes, it's kind of clunky because, you know, um, there's a lot of nuances and complex questions. And he goes, and all I've got is the Ten Commandments and a handful of Bible quotes. And he said, and then this Catholic theologian gets up there and like this, you know, Thomistic scholar. And he's like, I've got like 500 categories and layers and nuances and vectors of, of, of stuff that I can bring to bear on this. And he said, I guess, listen to the guy I was like, oh my goodness, like that guy's got all the tools. And he was like, you know, uh, Catholic, the Catholic intellectual tradition has all of the tools. And so I think for a certain sort of kind of person uh, that that journey, I mean, I was one of those people, that journey from Geneva to Rome kind of went down that route of what I loved about Calvinism when I was a, when I was a college student and discovered it was because I was in a real unstructured evangelical campus, you know, campus mm-hmm. crusade kind of thing. And all of a sudden somebody handed me the Institutes of Christian Religion. I go like, oh, look at all this like organized thought. And I love this. Mm-hmm. And then like 10 years later, somebody hands me, you know, the... Uh, or not, not that long, but somebody, then somebody hands me, you know, Thomas Aquinas's Summa and I go, I thought I loved the Institutes <laughs> of the Green, but then I found this and this is like the Institutes of the Christian Religion on steroids. So I think that, you know, how we get to, to Catholicism, and you and I have talked about this before, there's so many different roads to Rome. They all end up at the same place, but they come from so many different directions. So anyway, just a little bit of conversation about how you might get from Germany to, to, to Rome versus Geneva to Rome. Uh, but the important thing is that we end up in Rome. Yeah. So, hey, thanks, Corey. Yep. Thank okay, you, Greg. Bye. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts, and please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think, greg at consideringcatholicism.com.